In order to go on with its function of being the salt of the earth which never loses its savor, the depositum fidei, the deposit of faith, must be loyally preserved in its purity, without falling along the line of a dialectical process of history and in the direction of the primacy of praxis. That's from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's notification on the book Church, Charism, and Power by Father Leonardo Boff. And now from Guillermo Cesar Hansen's University of Chicago dissertation on the Trinity in Liberation Theology. Liberation Theology reasserts the Trinitarian notion of God as the normative paradigm of Christian discourse. Taken as a whole, Liberation Theology conforms to the main Orthodox regulation and directives given by the chief article of Christian faith. Namely, that reflection upon God implies, to the extent that it is a reflection upon the hypostatic distinctions and relations in God, a reflection upon the world that God posited, indwelled, and calls by, in, and through God himself. In the shadow of critiques from the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on some matters of Leonardo Boff's theology, Cesar Hansen affirms that liberation theology maintains the traditional Trinitarian notion of God. So how did Boff speak about the Trinity, and how did Boff both affirm the Trinity of the Depositum Fidei and also allow the Trinity to dialogue with the historical reality of Latin America? This is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchowskis. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Liberation Theology Podcast. Last episode, we started Leonardo Boff's Mysterium Liberationis chapter on the Trinity, and this time we'll finish it. But before we go into the material, a bit on Leonardo Boff himself. He was born on December 14, 1938, in Concordia Santa Catarina, Brazil. He joined the Franciscans in 1959 and was ordained a priest in 1964. In the early to mid-1980s, Boff participated in a conflictive theological exchange with the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, or the CDF, formerly known as the Supreme Sacred Congregation for the Roman and Universal Inquisition, or simply the Inquisition. In 1985, the CDF made a public notification that its reservations about Boff's book, Church, Charism, and Power, could not be considered substantially overcome. And so the Vatican ordered him to be silent for one year. But this conflict would not be his last with the institutional church. He was forbidden from participating in an ecological summit in 1992, and he ultimately left the Franciscan order and discontinued his priestly ministry. But Boff is, of course, still living, and his critique is alive, too. He has been a strong opponent of the U.S. war on terror. He laments Brazil's own right-wing anti-ecological turn in the person of Jair Bolsonaro, and he opposes the expansion of NATO into the Ukraine, citing the double standard of the United States, who would never accept nuclear missiles three minutes from Washington, D.C., but seems set on placing missiles three minutes from Moscow. 
In the intro to this episode, I quoted Cesar Hansen's U Chicago dissertation on liberation theology and the Trinity, in which he notes that for some liberation theologians' tension with magisterial authority on the Trinity, many of the big figures in liberation theology, and Boff included, have been clear in accepting the Christian norm of the Trinitarian God. Now, we'll go deeper into Boff's understanding of the Trinity and its bearing on our structuring of society. And near the end of today's show, I'll pick out some key points from my America Magazine interview with Chema Tojera, a Jesuit priest at the Central American University, on Nayib Bukele, El Salvador's president, and his recent moves to consolidate power and crypto-financialize the Central American nation. It'll be a great episode. Thank you for joining. Doctrine does not simply appear. Rather, it's the result of reflection on life. So it is with the Trinity. Early Christians were wrestling with the reality before them. First, there was Jesus, who was both similar to and different from the Father. Then there was the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus had gone, but a new divine person, the Spirit, was experienced in an extraordinary and vivid way. But how did all of these data points, this sort of avalanche of experiences of God, fit together? Early grasps at the Trinity emerge in the Bible. They're not fully formed, but the general sense is there. In the evangelist's description of the baptism of Jesus, there's the Father's voice from the heavens, there's the Spirit descending like a dove, and there's the Son in the River Jordan there below. It's as if the Spirit is a thread of love connecting parent and child, heaven and earth. Then there's Paul's Trinitarian prayer in 2 Corinthians, quote, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, end quote. This invocation is often recited at the start of Catholic Mass, a reminder of the Trinitarian grace, love, and fellowship at the root of our faith. And the most cited Trinitarian formula in the New Testament occurs at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Quote, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. End quote. The Trinitarian formula is so important that baptism occurs not just in the name of Jesus, not just in the Spirit, but in the name of each person of the Trinity. And we also see in the passage from Matthew there what would later be called circumcession, or the reciprocal existence in each other of the three persons of the Trinity. Though Jesus is leaving by way of the ascension, the Holy Spirit is coming and will stay, and Jesus is present in the Spirit. In this way, though Jesus per se, the person of Jesus, isn't present in the same way as before, Jesus is present in the Spirit. But all of this biblical material is only hinting, gesturing, 
at the dogma of the Trinity, defined later at the Council of Nicaea in 325, of Constantinople in 381, and Ephesus in 431, and in fact beyond. It took a while for the church to process the experience and develop that Trinitarian doctrine. And these councils, Boff observes, did not make official declarations on the Trinity just because. Rather, they issued them due to controversies that urged them to clarify the key questions. Only when church leaders sensed that false teachings were arising that did not correspond to the reality of God revealed by Jesus according to the experience of the church, did they sit down to sort out matters of nature, person, procession, relation, etc. This process of defining the Trinity is important because it reflects a methodological concern of liberation theology in general. As Ea Correa elaborated in his philosophy of historical reality, intelligence is sensory. Contra Descartes, there is no abstract apart from life experience in which human beings can develop clean logical theorems about God. On the contrary, human experience goes hand in hand with human rationality, as it should and must. And so just as the early theology of the Trinity has its roots in the experience of the early church, theology today and even theology of the Trinity today, especially pastoral theology, should have its roots in the experience of the church today, always understanding, as Heidegger did, that the past has its bearing or after-effects on the present. It's not a matter of merely ditching, of course not ditching, the Trinitarian formula developed by the early church and those councils that is present. It is part of the past that has an important theological bearing and even a dogmatic theological bearing on the present, but at the same time finding a way to speak the Trinity to the reality of the present day and last. Latin America. Last episode, I talked about some errors about the Godhead that continue to show up in contemporary thought about the Trinity, modalism, subordinationism, tritheism. And Boff notes that these errors are much the same as the errors that divided the early church when Trinitarian dogma was being defined. We can see the past's after effects on the present. And each of these errors has both repercussions at the societal level and also reflects oppression at the societal level. Modalism, with its reduction of the separate persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to mere modes or manifestations of one God, ultimately invisibilizes or diminishes the real diversity of the persons, much as hollow calls for unity in the body politic paper over the diversity of experiences within the nation. And we hear this a lot, especially recently in the United States, these calls for unity. But unity around what? <laughs> it certainly ought not be unity around the status quo because the status quo is one of oppression, racial, gender, LGBTQ. And how, then, are we supposed to unite around something that is inherently divisive? It doesn't work. So that's modalism. And then there's subordinationism with its assignation of divinity to the Father alone and its assertion that the Son and the Spirit are submissive to the will of the Father, conveying an image of God that's authoritarian, much as monarchy and oligarchy do not respect the real equality of persons. 
And then tritheism, with its affirmation of three gods, rejects the intimate unity of the three persons in one god, just like undue fragmentation in society creates the division of manual and intellectual labor, the division of the classes, and divisions within the working class that create oppressive intersections and prevent successful organizing. Now, the definition of the Trinity at the ecumenical councils acted against these errors in very positive ways, but there was also a loss associated with the process. The technical language of substance, nature, relation, much of it inherited from Greek philosophy alienates the average person who may not have training in Aristotelian thought. Many times we're saying to ourselves, what does that mean? Substance, nature, these terms seem to be used, but what do they mean for the people of that day? How does that relate to the way we use those words today? Very hard to say. And it's very hard to say whether our experience of the faith is best expressed in these definitional abstract philosophical terms. Certainly something was gained in the process the defense against the problematic conceptions of God mentioned. But something was also lost. The raw experience of the life of faith that's deeper and richer than what we can put into logical formulations. That said, the definitions do have their basis in the experience of the early church. They are important and they call us to reflect on who God is and who we are. The words may be unfamiliar to us, or their denotations may not be the same as the denotations to which we are accustomed, but they are charged with significance nonetheless. Take, for example, circumcision, which Boff characterizes as, quote, a total circulation of life and love in perfect co-equality without any anteriority or superiority, end quote. He goes on to relate circumcision to society. Quote, This is the model on which we Christians develop our social utopia, which is also a community of equality and respect for differences, a full living communion of the most diverse relationships. End quote. In circumcision, the Trinity transcends the hollow unity of modalism, the despotic superiority of subordinationism, and the polarizing disintegration of tritheism. So too, circumcision in society would transcend the pleas for hollow unity around an oppressive status quo, the monarchic norm that plagues even allegedly democratic political conjunctures, and the overfragmentation among the oppressed that inhibits revolutionary success. At this point, Boff pivots to discuss the way that Christians strategically presented the theology of the Trinity in the Roman and Greek contexts of the ancient world, and how we might gainfully present the Trinity in contemporary Latin America. In a Roman society, Christians focused on the oneness of God in a polytheistic environment. We started from one divine nature. Though running the risk of modalism, our presentation of God's oneness acted against the notion that God is just one God among many gods associated with particular peoples and places. We are all children of one God. All of humanity shares this connection. In Greek society, insisting on crude monotheism would have confused people about the Son, so a shift was made towards the unity between the Father and the Son. Hence, the early ecumenical councils are especially interested in the two natures and one personhood of the Son, as well as the consubstantial nature of the Father and the Son. 
Though running the risk of subordinationism by starting with the Father and subsequently showing how the Son is one with the Father, the Christian presentation of the Trinity to the Greek world was necessary in a philosophical environment that privileged clear definitions and already had a sense for the oneness of God. In Latin America today, we should focus neither on the oneness of God nor on the unity between the Father and the Son, but rather on the relations, stressing, quote, communion as the essence of the Trinity and the foundation of all human solidarity, end quote. In a context of poverty, of global subordination, of anti-black and anti-indigenous racism, of machismo, of anti-LGBTQ violence, it's essential to present the Trinity as a radical communion of equal yet diverse persons, as three lovers of one same love, as an egalitarian alternative in which the poor can find inspiration for the construction of a different world. We must present a liberative conception of the Trinity to an oppressed world. Key to a liberative conception of the Trinity is its threeness. God is not a communion of two persons, forever a one-on-one, face-to-face, interiorly absorbed duo. God is not the, quote, mutual contemplation of only two people, end quote. The love of God is not solipsistic. On the contrary, it pours itself out perpetually, one into two, two into three. In turn, as Bergen and Schwann write in their transliteration of St. Ignatius Loyola's first principle and foundation, God's love, quote, spilled over into creation, end quote, at the birth of the universe. The love of God does not limit itself to the Trinity, but seeks to absorb all of creation into itself. At the Incarnation, the love of the Trinity, like an open embrace, reaches out to humanity. And at the Ascension, the love of the Trinity lifts humanity up to itself, the human Jesus being the first fruits of an infinite, eternal, universal flowering of love in which God and all of creation participate. This flowering is the expansion of the divine mystery of inclusion. God, who in three persons has from the beginning been inclusive, each one person of the other two, seeks inclusive communion with all of creation in the process of salvation history. Yet we know of the reality of sin, that which puts up obstacles to the inclusive sharing of life and love that characterizes God. In contemporary Latin America, the reality of sin can be summed up in a word, capitalism. Boff writes, quote, In the capitalist system under which we all suffer, everything is centered upon the individual and individual development. There is no essential regard for others or for society. Goods are privately appropriated, to the exclusion of ownership, on the part of the vast majority of persons. Individual differences are valued to the detriment of communion. The socialist system, for its part, emphasizes universal participation, which, as far as the ideal is concerned, more nearly resembles the Trinitarian dynamic. But personal differences mean little here. Socialist society tends to constitute a mass rather than a people, because a people is the fruit of a whole network of communities and associations in which persons count. 
The Trinitarian mystery invites us to adopt social forms that value all relations among persons and institutions and foster an egalitarian, familial community in which differences will be positively welcomed. As the Christians of the base church communities have formulated it, the Holy Trinity is the best community. End quote. Capitalism's chief contradiction, what Martha Harnecker calls, quote, the increasingly social character of the productive forces versus the increasing concentration of private property of the means of production, end quote, is also a contradiction of the pattern of the Trinity. Though capitalism relies on a vast network of social connections to function, a highly globalized economy, the concentration of productive ownership is not globalized at all. Rather, a sliver of the world's population owns the businesses that produce what we consume, and as a result, a sliver of the world's population amasses the profits that flow from universal consumption. This contradiction is highly anti-Trinitarian. Though the Trinity is social, like the character of the productive forces, that is, a society of diverse persons, it's not as if one member of the Trinity is anterior to the other or superior to the other. The Father does not rack up wealth at the expense of the Son and the Spirit. There is no subordination in the Trinity. There is communion. There is no naturalizing of inequality in the Trinity. The Father is not naturally better than the other persons, and no person is naturally better than others in human society. No one is destined to rule over others by nature, as Aristotle would have it. Rather, as in the Trinity's sharing of one divine nature, humanity shares one human nature. From these parallels, we can see how radical a project it would be to build human society according to the model of the Trinity. So Boff asks, how can the church communicate this message the essence of equal, mutual, creative love to humanity. How can the church shun its anti-Trinitarian structures and become a beacon of Trinitarian life to the world? Boff concludes his essay on the Trinity with a meditation on three sacraments of the Trinity in history. Humanity in our ability to fantasize, to see analogies and metaphors. Two, in Ignatian language, quote, find God in all things, end quote, has discerned in our reality sacraments or visible signs of the Trinity. And Boff names three in his essay, the human person, the human family, human society. Each person is, quote, a mystery of intelligence, love, and will, end quote. Each person has infinite, inscrutable dignity made in the image and likeness of God. Like God, we are persons. By nature, we have will and intellect. We can think, we can make decisions, yet this process is not a solely individual one. We cultivate our intellect in community. We form our will in community. And that's where love is, in our common pursuit of knowledge and sharing of knowledge for the sake of our mutual benefit and our common decisions that build up the community. Like God, we do not act alone by nature. As a bioontological necessity, we must act together. It's merely a question of how we will choose to act in the freedom that flows from our unique material conditions as human beings. The human family, too, has its oneness and threeness. 
The love of two parents overflows into a third, the love of a child, and there are unique and reciprocal relations among the three. There is a special bond of sharing that unites the couple, and the child has a unique relationship to each parent. But through all this, there is a unity. There is one family. And then human society also reflects the Trinity with its three interrelated elements of economics, politics, and culture. Though far from a perfect analogy, like the son proceeds from the father, politics proceeds from economics, and like the spirit proceeds from the father and the son, culture proceeds from both economics and politics. This procession, like the base superstructure sociological model, consists of a complex web of interrelations of mutual reinforcement. These three analogs reflect and communicate something of the Trinity, but as Boff makes clear, no human social construction, no natural phenomenon, no artistic image is capable of adequately capturing the profundity of the mystery of the Trinity. And that's why, quote, Augustine, Bonaventure, and Aquinas and their treatises on the Trinity with a hymn of adoration, end quote. Before so august a reality, the best we can do is give thanks and praise, a thanks and praise that empowers us to, imperfectly as it may be, build up individuals, families, and societies that mirror the love of a triune God. So we've talked quite a bit about the Trinity, two episodes journeying with Leonardo Boff through his conception of the Trinity. And as I like to do, it's good to bring liberation theology down from that conceptual level to praxis. And so I want to make some comments, again, flowing from my recent trip to Honduras and El Salvador. I had the wonderful opportunity to meet with Father Chema Tojera, a Jesuit brother, who at that time was the director of the Human Rights Institute at the UCA in El Salvador. And I wanted to discuss with him President Nayib Bukele. Bukele, a few months before, had made this decision to allow Bitcoin to function as an official currency alongside the U.S. dollar in El Salvador. And then he had announced this project, Bitcoin City, which certainly caused quite a bit of a ruckus on social media and in the country as people are discussing the significance of that project. So there were many things that I wanted to discuss with Chema. And we did that interview. It was a great time to be with him. And it led to also an article that was published in America Media. The title of the article, El Salvador's President Made Bitcoin a National Currency, a Jesuit says the project reminds him of, quote, the seven deadly sins. End quote. And that's right. Chema, in a very public way, had said that Bitcoin City reminds him of the city of the seven deadly sins. So I wanted to talk to him about that. What's behind that comment? What's behind Nayib Bukele? And that article came out on January 24th of this year, 2022, though the interview took place in mid-December. So I first asked Chema about the rise of Nayib Bukele in Salvadoran politics. And Chema wanted to respond to that question by returning to the Civil War, which ended in 1992. As one might imagine, at the end of the Civil War, though the country is certainly torn apart, there's also a hope 
that is produced by the peace accords. And so uh, first, the Arena Party, a conservative party, a segment of the bourgeoisie, supporters certainly of neoliberalism, the internationalization of the capitalist structures, uh, took power and were in for about 20 years, and that there was little progress that was made during this time. There was kind of a dashing of the economic hopes as happens oftentimes in capitalism, the, the making of pro, uh, hopes for capital for progress, but ultimately that progress does not come or it comes piecemeal. And at the same time, Chema noted that during the uh, 20 years of arena governance in El Salvador, there also arose the phenomenon of the gang activity. And Chema noted uh, kind of flippantly that during the war, there was not gang activity. But then once peace came, then in that context, the gangs arose. And part of that due to connections and forced uh, migration through economic uh, violent conditions to the United States and the interplay that developed uh, between the United States, uh, Mexico, and El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, and uh, reaching down into South America. So for to a large degree, we can say that Chema was expressing that Arena's 20 years of political project failed, and that led to then 10 years of the FMLN, which is the leftist party advocating for democratic socialism, though Chema says this party was also ended, ended up becoming rather corrupt developed, yes, a populist rhetoric that was attractive to people, especially in light of the 20 years of problems with ARENA, but just as ARENA did not lead to significant material social improvements, also the FMLN at the end of the day did not lead to significant uh, social reforms. So in this context of people's first disenfranchisement uh, from ARENA and then the FMLN, Bukele emerges. Bukele, the son of a business executive of progressive ideals, originally a member of the FMLN, and he became the mayor of a small suburb, really, of San Salvador called Nuevo Cuscatlan. And there, there was a water crisis that Bukele resolved in a rather productive, uh, rapid fashion. And his success there in Nuevo Cuscatlan propelled him to become mayor of San Salvador itself. And as mayor of San Salvador, uh, two of his main projects that people kind of enjoyed were, one, the beautification of the city center, developing kind of that touristy, good-looking central plaza. And part of that also was a crime reduction program that Bukele implemented in San Salvador that did find some success. So his relative success, again, in San Salvador, as in Nuevo Cuscatlan, propelled him then to a presidential bid. But Bukele also, as mayor, was engaging in a critique of his own party, the FMLN, accusing it of corruption. So the FMLN, of course, became discontent with Nayib Bukele uh, at that time. And then, of course, Arena was not very happy with Bukele either. So these two mainstream parties, we could say, wanted to block his presidential bid. And they kind of did so and eventually forced Bukele to a right-wing party, kind of a, a fringe group that had broken off from Arena called Ghana. And he ended up running and winning with this party. And people 
then, of course, were accusing him of abandoning his leftist values by choosing to run with Ghana. Now, at the beginning of Bukele's administration, there were certainly some difficulties in the sense that, as I mentioned, uh, he was not one of the two major parties who's running with Ghana. And so in the legislature, he did not have many representatives who supported him. So he had great difficulty getting things through, and this frustrated him very much so to the point that he entered into Congress with military and with police and kind of sat down and ended up having this, what we could call a very strange event, where he then proceeded to say, you know, I have this button, I could press the button at any time, but I'm not going to press the button, leading people to wonder what exactly is this button? Is it, you know, the repression of the other parties? Is it the dissolving of Congress? Is it a self-coup that he wants to orchestrate? What exactly is going on here? It was just kind of a strange event, but kind of showed this authoritarian face of Nayib Bukele. And shortly after that, and Chema notes, it was kind of helpful in a way to Bukele that the pandemic happened shortly after that, because a lot of people sort of forgot about that weird, almost dictatorial-like event in Congress with the pandemic arising. So in the pandemic, uh, Chema noted that Bukele was fairly strong and that this was a positive of Bukele in the sense that he took the pandemic very seriously. He was not a pandemic denier relative to many other Central American countries. El Salvador took a, a firm stand on the pandemic, though that was positive. We could say there were also negatives about Bukele's pandemic uh, policy, and one of them was what came to be referred to as contention centers. And this is if someone breaks the pandemic policies and goes out maybe on a day when their their number would not allow them to go out and buy groceries, then they could be placed in one of these contention centers uh, for 30 days. And then if they further didn't comply, they could be there for even longer. That the conditions in these centers were not great. Is it also a, a persecution of the poor. El Salvador, like many Central American countries, has a large informal economy. So in preventing people from going out, it uh, is hurting people uh, very much so economically. And so there was some criticism there, though at the same time, a noting of Bukele's success, especially in the vac vaccination program. I think El Salvador is now at about 70% of its population vaccinated, which is really good relative to some other countries. And also Bukele did a good job of acquiring ventilators for the country. And uh, so there was some success there. Now, we mentioned that Bukele did not have congressional support at the beginning of his government, but that changed because in the midterm elections, Bukele, through the party Nuevas Ideas, New Ideas, did get a significant uh, majority in the Congress. Huge victory, landslide victory. And this has led to increasingly author authoritarian measures in that now Bukele has such unilateral control that he has used this control in order to dismantle some of the democratic institutions in the country, deposing the constitutional court chamber of the Supreme Court. 
also basically replacing the attorney general in a sort of a Trump-like move and then making the new attorney general carry out his personal vendettas. So if someone is criticizing him publicly, let's put the attorney general's office on this person and see how we can take them down. And then on the Supreme Court itself, Bukele placed on the court two of his administration's officials. So just kind of shifting things around so that he can have more and more control. In that context as well uh, emerges this whole Bitcoin city phenomenon. So there is the addition of Bitcoin as a national currency and the announcement of Bitcoin city. And Chema notes that this was a spectacle, the announcement of Bitcoin city. No other word than spectacle can really describe it in the sense that there's a stage and there's these lights and then there's a smoke that appears. Then Bukele kind of appears with his hat and it's almost like it's a concert uh, and he's the star of the show. It, it almost has also a divine connotation that Bukele is appearing from the clouds and showing what Tojera called, you know, one of those seven deadly sins, the pride there. And then there's also the greed component in that Chema said, wealth, growth, material benefit for humanity does not come from speculation on financial markets, but comes from human labor. That's a key point <laughs> in the sense that what is the value, the real use value to cryptocurrency? It's difficult to say in Marxist language, what is the way that cryptocurrency meets a material human need? So uh, when economy becomes speculation and not labor to meet material human needs, is it not just an, a desire for accumulation, which is greed? Then I asked Chema about the deteriorating international relations, especially between the United States and El Salvador, and he told me an interesting story, which was that, of course, in the wake of the dissolution of the constitutional court, many ambassadors were concerned about the direction in which El Salvador was heading. And so Bukele called for a conference with the diplomatic corps. And he said this is going to be a confidential meeting. And then at that meeting, basically, you know, it happened, a closed door meeting. But then the next day, uh, Bukele comes out and basically presents what happened at the meeting as if he told the diplomatic corps what's up and dominated them. And this, of course, pissed off the diplomatic corps because they thought that they were going into a confidential meeting. And then here the next day, Bukele is sharing alleged details of the meeting that fit what Bukele wants his population to believe about what happened at that meeting. So that is one of the things, among many other things, that led to a deterioration in the diplomatic relations between the United States and El Salvador. Then I asked, what about Bukele and his use of religion, his use of God language? And Tojera, kind of in a scathing critique, said that, yes, Bukele does use God language. One of the key times that he used God language was precisely at the moment when he entered into Congress with the military and police and said that he was going to resolve the problem, and he was telling God that he was going to resolve the problem, quote-unquote, you know, press that button, whatever that button is, but that God had told him, oh no, you need to be patient, my son, be patient. And so then he relented from his plans, whatever he was going to do. 
Seamus said that use of God language is just a transactional God language. There's no real substance to it. It's just the use of Jesus and religion in order to achieve certain political ends. We finished with a question about El Salvador and the way to move forward. And he mentioned that he felt that violence is not the way forward in the sense that there is institutionalized positive violence, as he called it, and that that certainly needs to be overcome. The violence that comes from the capitalist system, the violence that comes from the repressive state apparatus, etc. But he said also we need to, at this point, reject reject the use of negative violence, uh, what he would call revolutionary leftist violence, that it is not uh, the way to proceed at this moment, but rather that dialogue is the way to proceed in that after many years of civil war, after many years of instability, that the right thing to do at this time is to promote a genuine conversation amongst all parties, especially in a context in which currently Bukele is trying to simply silence his opponents by, again, putting the power of the state behind his attacks on his opponents. So if anyone is critical, again, Bukele is using state power to silence uh, and persecute those individuals. So the thing to do is to resist that by being dialogical. And I think that we have a great example of that in recent days, in that just two days ago, so I think it was February 3rd, a special commission of the legislature, the national legislature in El Salvador, called uh, Father Andreu Oliva, the rector or, in U.S. terms, president of the Central American University, to appear before this commission to answer questions about alleged corruption and use of misuse of government funds. And also, the university has, of course, a non-for-profit status, and these government officials were accusing the university of actually engaging in in projects that were for profit. And how can how does one respond to this? There's many approaches that one could take. Uh, of course, it's a it's a total farce. It's a show. So what do you do? Do you not go and legitimate that critique? Do you go and Andreu decided to go and he went with packets of information detailing the UCA's financial history. And he made two very important points that to the charge that the UCA was using government funds, he simply responded very eloquently with the fact that previous governments had approached the UCA with certain projects that they wanted to carry out for the benefit of the country. Some of those projects the UCA uh, decided to engage in because they thought that they would be of benefit to the Salvadoran people. Other projects were rejected. But when a project was accepted, funds would not go into the UCA account, but that a separate account was created so that the UCA and the government institution affiliated with education could work together on the projects at hand, given the UCA's expertise as a university in various areas of import to the country. And that when those funds that were in a separate account that was administered jointly, that when those funds were used, they were used on the projects, and when there was funds left over, they were given back to the government. And he presented the documentation uh, showing that. And then regarding the charge of for-profit, he said, of course, the university, in order to survive, seeks to expand. And so 
of course, the university is interested in looking into how it can do so. But apart from that topic, there's the whole topic of allegations that the UCA was engaging in financial speculation. And and Oliva just has doesn't really know how to respond to this at first, but he says, well, the only thing that I can think of that we really do along those lines is we have a microfinancing program where we give out funds to entrepreneurs of the lowest class of people in El Salvador who are engaging in social projects for the common good. It's not as if Andreu himself is investing in the stock market or something like that for personal benefit, but rather that, yes, if the UCA is engaging in financial projects, the financial projects it's engaging in are these targeted, effective microfinance loans that are given to the poor at very low or no uh, rates of interest. And so... He really dismantled uh, these charges of corruption in this clown show, really, of a meeting that was called by some members of Nayib Bukele's party in the legislature. And I think it illustrates very well Tojeda's point to the importance of dialogue and that right now is a time for the building of democracy. And part of that means, yes, responding to allegations, responding to calls to appear before this commission, but then calmly and clearly demonstrating why these allegations are false. And it was, in the end, a very successful method as uh, as uh, Andreu exposed the falsity of these charges, it was really quite a moral victory, both for the UCA, for the Society of Jesus, and for the independence of the UCA as an academic institution. Because what is behind this whole show may be the fact that the UCA regularly publishes editorials that are critical of some of the things that I just spoke about from the interview with Chema that uh, when Bukele is making these authoritarian moves, when Bukele is seeking to crypto-financialize the country, the UCA has spoken out and denounced these things in a prophetic fashion. And of course, those who do so, when they speak like John the Baptist or others do against authorities who are making moves to consolidate their power and their wealth, they often face persecution. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. It's great to share this time with you. We will continue next time with some Christology, and a special guest will be joining me for that conversation. So look forward to that. But for now, let us end with a prayer. And I thought that since we were talking about the Trinity and Boff mentioned at the end that Augustine, Aquinas, and Bonaventure had hymns to the Trinity, praises that they had written to the Trinity, at the end of their treatises on the Trinity that we would end with one of those, so why not this one, edited from St. Augustine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord our God, we believe in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have made me able to seek you. I have sought you and have desired to see with my understanding what I believed. O Lord my God, my one hope, hearken to me, lest through weariness I be unable to seek you. 
but that I may always ardently seek your face. Do thou give strength to seek, who has made me find you, and has given the hope of finding you more and more. May I remember you, understand you, love you, increase these things in me, until you renew me wholly. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.